We've been walking through a series to recognize the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Um, the Reformation was a rediscovery and a rearticulation of the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And historically, as we reflect on what it was that operated as the pillars of those articulations, we call them the five solas. Sola is the Latin word for only. And the five collectively are that we are saved according to the scriptures alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, because of grace alone, to the glory of God alone. This morning we're going to look at, uh, at grace alone. And Ephesians 2 is easily the best place to do so. Because it's really the focus of the chapter. If you're trying to understand what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, there's many places in the Bible you could look to. It would be totally appropriate to recognize that not only is all of the New Testament devoted to explaining that, but the entire Old Testament is devoted to preparing for that. And so, as Jesus himself said, you search the scriptures. For in them you think you have life, but it is they that testify of me. But Ephesians is especially effective for this because Paul's purpose is to lay out God's great plan of salvation from beginning to end. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is talking to the elders of this same church, the church in Ephesus, and he says, For I have not neglected to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And the word there that's used for counsel, we only find in one other book in the New Testament. And surprise, surprise, it's this one. It's Ephesians. And so here we encounter from many different angles exactly what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And chapter 2 um, lays out this summary that really highlights the reality of grace. And I think that's super important for us this morning because grace is one of these words that's so big, uh, we tend to be reductionistic. And it's so common that we tend to uh, misunderstand the reality of it. Uh, and it's so profound that it, we tend to lose our sensitivity to it. And so it's always worth reviewing. And so what I'd like to do this morning is just read chapter 2, 1 through 10 through. We'll pray and then we'll take a closer look. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. 
Father, your word says of itself that it is living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, and able to, to discern, to divide between flesh and spirit, between bone and marrow. I pray, Lord, that your, work, or your word would do its work this morning, that it would penetrate our hearts. I pray that we would be overwhelmed by the reality of what you've done and freely offered us in Jesus Christ this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. I want you to catch the flow of the passage this morning. It really falls very succinctly into three sections, okay? Who we were, who we are, and why. So if you look, for example, the first um, three verses, that describes, describes who we were, and that's why it says, and you were, and it describes that. Then you'll notice the transition statement in verse 4, but God, and so who we were, what God has done, and then we get the explanation um, in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it walks through there. It, the structure is incredibly simple, but it's also really important. You see, the first thing we need to understand about this word grace is although it is part of God's character, it is only part of God's character because of the reality of sin. If sin wasn't an issue, if humankind was not fallen, if it weren't for Genesis chapter 3, God would not be gracious because there'd be no need for grace. Okay? Grace, by definition, is a response to something that's wrong with us, or more importantly, something that's wrong with our relationship with God. And so when we read the first three verses, this helps us to understand the problem that God seeks to meet in Jesus Christ. And let me just say plainly, the problem is deeper than we usually understand. You see, when you diagnose an illness or assess a wound, knowing the depth of the illness, knowing the difficulty of the wound determines the solution. Probably all of you have had that experience where you've got a cut and you're going, is this stitch worthy? Or can I just stay home, not, you know, can I just risk throwing a Band-Aid on this? And a lot of our approaches to dealing with the problems of our life, particularly as they relate to sin, this, uh, this great opposition we find in ourselves against the living God and the destructive selfishness that we find that plays out in other people's lives and our relationships, um, we often try and solve that through Band-Aids. And so we think, well, I just need to work a little harder I need to memorize, you know, some sort of mantra of self-control to overcome my anger. I just need to avoid these types of people and circumstances. Um, but, but as Paul labels it here, this is not just a flesh wound. This is not some mere mark on your humanity. This is something that goes to the depths and the core of who you are. This is cancer, and it calls for drastic measures. And as we plumb the depths of the reality of what's wrong with us, we also create the void that God's grace fills, okay? And so we can directly measure the goodness and the grace of God in the distance he's gone to save us. And so these verses are helpful for that. Let's look at them again in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The primary metaphor Paul uses here to ex explain our condition is death. You were dead. 
Now, if you go back and you read Genesis chapter 3, you'll see that that's built into the warning for Adam and Eve. For on the day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. But if you're reading it for the first time, it's a little bit of a head-scratcher because they do eat of the tree, and that day turns into the next day. In fact, Adam lives a tremendously long time. He does eventually die. And the Bible makes clear that this reality that we experience, much like Pastor Matt talked about this morning, of death is a demonstration that something's wrong. Okay? Death is a symptom, a symptom of the problem of sin. Okay? But Paul says something more profound here. He says not, and you will die because of your trespasses and sins. He says, you were dead in them. You were dead men and women walking. Now, when we look at the solas, that word alone means that there's something that's usually added, right? And so, uh, by faith alone, as we looked at last week, it was either by faith alone or by faith and works. And the reformers said, no, just and completely and solely by faith. What's on the other side of the scale for grace? Merit, okay? Either it's given freely and undeservedly, or there's something in us that qualifies or validates the gift. Okay. One of the aspects of merit that we often bring to the table is simply ability. A big question we have to ask ourselves is, can we fix what's wrong? And when Paul chooses the metaphor of death, he speaks profoundly and loudly and says no. You're dead. You can no more fix this than Lazarus could walk out of that tomb without the direct command of Jesus. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's how deep the rabbit hole goes. Okay? That's how serious our condition is because of sin. He continues on and he explains how this played out. He says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked Okay, so there's a limitation to the metaphor here. It's a walking death. It's, it's a death that's profoundly active, but everything it does is dripping with corruption. Everything it does is bent on its own destruction. Everything it does is diametrically opposed to life because God is life. So he says, by which we walked first following the course of this world. Okay, and so he says the first thing that this death looks like is conformity. We just go with the flow. In the same way that a dead salmon goes wrong way up or downstream, right? It's no longer swimming. And he says that's how it was for us with the world. We just naturally went the way of the world. But what, what here is the world, okay? Is it talking about the fact that just naturally our planet rotates on its axis and so we just go with it? Or the fact that it rotates around the sun and so we're constantly in motion, whether we like it or not? Of course not. It's not talking about that world. But it's also not talking about the world as in everybody else outside the church. The world, okay? The, the way that the phrase is used here is pointing to the fact that there is a collectivity to sin nature that is greater than the sum of its parts, okay? And so we enable and encourage and make possible greater travesties of wickedness together than apart, okay? When he says that we follow the course of the world, you should absolutely think of the Nazi general who was just following orders. But you should also recognize we're not talking about the Nazi general, we're talking about you. 
He says, that's who you were. You were so dead that you just went with the flow. He continues, he says, following the prince of the power of the air. Now, that's a really fancy term for the devil. You'll notice here uh, uh, what's sometimes been called the unholy trinity, the three great things that influence Christians and non-Christians, the world as a, told, as a whole towards evil. The world, the devil, and in a second we'll get to the flesh. But it points out here that there is a spiritual enemy, and when it says that we follow him, that's not just that the devil is trying to destroy us, but that we are rank and file with him. Do you see that? John the Apostle in 1 John says that the whole world is under the power, or under the influence, or under the thumb of the wicked one. And so, basically, Satan's great rebellion, we've signed up for the war on the wrong side. He continues and he says, um, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, when it says the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, that's not talking about the devil. If you're a grammar nerd, spirit there is genitive, whereas prince is accusative. Those are incompatible. But the way that the prince works is through a broader spirit and influence, and that's what's now at work. And what he says is that there's an agent, there's a power at work, there's an ability and enabling in sin that goes into this whole paradigm. Okay? The spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, there's an internal reality, not just an external one. By the way, that's new. Adam and Eve are tempted by a tempter out here. Because of their sin, we have an internal issue, a collusion between the spirit of the world under the prince of the power of the air and our own flesh. But he says that it's now at work in the sons of disobedience, and that phrase is helpful. Okay, this is a Hebrewism. Whenever you encounter in the New Testament the, the concept of sons, the sons of righteousness, the sons of Belial, the sons of wisdom, the sons of disobedience, you'll encounter them. The idea here is one of um, likeness. Right, And so you look like your parent. And so a son of disobedience manifests the traits of disobedience itself. Okay? And so they are what they appear to be, is what the emphasis is here. But it doesn't end there. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind... And we're by nature children of wrath. And so the third thing he focuses on is our flesh, okay? Not our physical flesh and bones, but this internal, totally you opposition to God, okay? That's what the Bible calls the flesh. It's this part that is completely natural. And that doesn't make it right, okay? But it's... Um, it's your desires, he says, the passions, the desires of our flesh, um, carrying out the desires of our body, okay? And so basically what this says is that we are so screwed up as human beings, we want destructive things. We want them. And you need to recognize this. What underlies your choices? Take the ones that you label bad choices. Desires. Your will is bound to what you want. And what you want is bound to what you love. Okay? And this bondage that he's talking about here, he's saying that you just follow these passions. 
And you go, wait, okay, hold on. I'm not a Christian, and this description is disturbing to me uh, because this is just not how I feel. I don't feel like any of this. And I would just say, does a dead man feel when you put a 20-pound weight on his chest? That's part of the problem. He says at the end, we were by nature children of wrath, okay? Now, there, children, unlike sons of disobedience, children brings out a different parent-child relationship, one of inheritance, okay? That's talking about what's coming to us. See, I said earlier that grace is something that's spawned by God uh, in response to sin, but so is wrath, okay? Because God hates evil, because evil destroys and brings death. God is constantly, diametrically opposed to sin. And that's what the Bible labels wrath. And it's very important that we don't import our understanding of wrath into this idea. Because when we hear wrath, we always think of flying off the handle. We think of, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry, right? Incredible Hulk. We think of being completely out of control and overreacting. That is not part of this concept at all, okay? Wrath is the fact that God is, like I said, diametrically opposed to evil, and that's a good thing. But the problem of the human condition is a good portion of that evil is in us, not over there, not just rolling out in some third world country. The Bible declares that there's a direct correlation between the sex trafficking of the world and the lust in our hearts. There's a direct correlation between the atrocities of war and the anger that burns within us. And Jesus spoke that way in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? He said they're one in the self-same. If you have lusted after a woman, you've already committed adultery. If you have anger in your heart against, you've already committed murder. You see, as a commentator I read last week puts it, the spark of the flame of hell... It's in us. That's what it means here when it says that by nature, by passions, by nature, we were children of wrath. Now, when it says by nature, I think you can read that born this way. That's the state of the human condition. By nature, this is how we begin. This isn't where you get to. It's not that we've all collectively taken the wrong turn. It's not that we all have a propensity and no one has been strong enough to resist the temptation. This goes down to the core of the problem. You were dead. Okay. And then we read verse 4 and we have a sigh of relief. But God. That's a simple explanation of grace right there. And you'll find it over and over and over in the Bible. This is where things are at. But God. Okay. When we read this little phrase, but God here, we should hear the, the concept of intervention. Right? That's the idea. This is how the playing board was laid. This is how things began. However, God. Okay. What does it say here? It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Okay. And so what is the cause here of God's intervention? Is it our longing for a savior? Is our love of God... Is it something in ourselves at all? No. Have you read the description that we just read? What is there that's attractive and beautiful about the nature of the world? Remembering that all of those things are directly opposed against God. That the sins we commit are first and foremost primarily an act of rebellion. A declaration of war against the living God. But because of his 
great love. Because he is rich in mercy. That's grace. Grace means when we look for the cause of our salvation, we look in the character of God and not in ourselves. Grace means if you want to understand why God saved you, the answer will always be because God and not because you. And this is important because love is another form of merit. If we say, well, I love God, so he has done these things for me, then that's not grace. If you say, well, we have a reciprocity, and so we love one another, so that's not grace alone. Where where are you in the picture of this moment in time, this but God moment? You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're by nature a child of wrath, but God in his kindness and love. Okay, that's grace. But, well, and notice what he says. Uh, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, despite of who we were, finding nothing in ourselves that it was able or validating of that love, what did he do? It says here, he made us alive together with Christ. Let me just point out to you that death is a difficult problem to overcome, okay? We have a pretty good track record of failure in that department. That's true of this spiritual death that we're talking about as well. This is no small thing for God to overcome this. And so when it says here that we were made alive with Jesus Christ, what's the missing implied link there? That Jesus died. Now, if you just put him on the, on the parallel with the rest of us as human beings, that's status quo. But the Bible declares that God became man, that God took on flesh, that the God who is life, that the God who does not sin, that the God who is love, became a man and lived out a perfect life of righteousness, obedience, and love, and died. Why? Because that is the solution that was called for. You see, when you read the description of these first few verses, if you own up to that and you say, yes, that's the problem, yes, that's me, then you have to understand the desperateness of the situation. God bridges that distance at great cost. In fact, here's an important thing. When we talk about grace, you cannot remove it from Jesus Christ. Too often in modern lingo, when we use the word and we say that God is gracious, we assume that that just means that he overlooks sin, that he doesn't deal with these things, that it's not that big of a deal, okay? You cannot disconnect grace in the biblical idea from this sacrifice that God has made in Jesus Christ, okay? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor put to death by the Nazis for espionage, He refers to that concept we just talked about as cheap grace. Grace that's costless, that's just given for free and has nothing behind it. And when he's defining it, he says this. He says, cheap grace is a grace that justifies sin and never justifies sinners. In other words, it says, the stuff you do, the hatred you've showed other people, the the atrocities that we've committed, no big deal. I'm just going to overlook them. But what God has done in Jesus Christ is justified us. He's taken actual guilty war criminals, 
sinners, God-haters, and he's made them righteous. And that comes at tremendous cost. The gift is free, but it was purchased at a great price. As Peter says, not with gold or silver or any other perishable thing, but with the precious blood of Christ. But once again, what does grace mean? It means God did that. God became a man, died the death that you deserve, and offered you in his resurrected life the life that you do not deserve. That's grace. So one of the things we have to understand here is when we talk about grace alone, we recognize that salvation begins with God, that the great action that makes salvation possible begins with him, not us going searching, not us laying out a contract and saying, okay, what about this? What about if I just agree to do these things and you'll reward me? And listen, this doesn't just begin with the New Testament. This goes back in the Old Testament. Who was it who gave the sacrificial system to the Jews? God. He said, there's a problem you can't overcome. I'm going to give you a solution, and it's a solution of blood. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember what Adam and Eve try and do about their sin issue? They recognize everything's gone wrong. They see themselves as naked. They discover their shame, and they take fig leaves, and they sew them to make them clothing. And the first thing God does is say, yeah, that's not going to cut it. And he kills an animal, and he clothes them in its bloody carcass. Talk about object lesson, right? They think this is just something you can cover up. No, you can't cover up. Sin leads to death. It leads to consequence. And the only way you're going to stand and breathe and live is at the cost of innocent life. It goes all the way back. It's God who clothes Adam and Eve. So much of our lives, guys, is just one big fig leaf fashion show. Just trying to prove that everything's okay because we're fine on the outside. And we just feel like if we can convince them, then maybe we can convince ourselves. God has a better way. But don't ever think that that better way is easier. It's bloody, it's vicious, it's violent, it's costly. It's the death of God's own son. And that's grace. But that's not all grace is. Grace isn't just the fact that God made the effort in Jesus Christ and left it on the table as an option for life. Notice what he says next. He says that he made us alive uh, uh, together with Jesus Christ. It emphasizes there, by grace you have been saved, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we aren't just made alive, we're raised up and seated with Jesus in heaven. This is what makes the ascension, right, in the opening pages of the book of Acts when Jesus ascends into heaven, tremendously important. Because Paul here in the book of Ephesus says there's a sense where we've gone with him. There's a sense where that's now the station, the position of our lives, okay? Effectively, we could argue from this chapter that we should no longer be living in this, you know, in our tombstones, that we shouldn't live life from that principle anymore because now we're seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What does that phrase, seated, convey? Finished. Rest. Completion. Right? Even Jesus, it says that he ascended to heaven and he sat down at the right hand. Why? Because the work was completed. 
When Jesus declares it is finished on the cross, we apply that to ourselves and that is grace. But not only that, when it says here that he, uh, that he raised us up, that he gave us life, the implication is grace is more than just math. It's not just God taking you know, the, the account of Jesus and your tremendous debts and paying that debts and now you're set. No, it involves new creation. Where there was once merely death, there is now life. Okay, how is it that we live the Christian life now that we are Christians? By grace. Because God has given us his spirit. God has given us life. God now enables us to obey. And so it's not just you can't be righteous enough for God before you're saved. Now any righteousness you manifest is just a work of God. It comes from the fact that you've been made alive in Christ Jesus, that you're seated in the heavenly places. And so it's not just that grace begins the Christian life. Grace is the only means of the continuation of the Christian life. Every work we do, every expression of that life. That's why Paul calls the gifts of God's Spirit, the things that God has given us so that we can serve one another in the church and do ministry, gifts. That's the same word for grace here. That's why Paul can say that by the grace of God, he was appointed an apostle. His entire life work, calling of God, was a gift. That's why I can say in 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Right? He's, he's not justifying or explaining away his behavior. He's trying to explain the tremendous reality of this one man who planted churches all over the Roman Empire. And he says, grace did that. He says, I worked more abundantly than the rest. Nevertheless, not I, but the grace that worked in within me. Speaking about the giving of the churches of Macedonia in 2 Corinthians, he says that God had given them a great grace so that they shared generously, yes, even beyond what they could afford. Where did that generosity come from? It was a work of God. Okay, and so grace isn't just merely where the Christian life begins. It's where it's lived. But it goes further than that. When we say by grace alone, look at God's plan in verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What does God have for the Christian for all eternity? Grace. Every day we live in heaven. Every breath we take in eternity. Every loving, depth-building relationship aspect of heaven is grace the immeasurable kindness, and that's what God has for us in Jesus Christ. Okay, it begins with grace, it continues with grace, it ends with grace. This is why we declare grace alone. Now he explains it, just in case we weren't getting it in picture. He says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Now it is true here, that when he says, and this is not your own doing, that is not the faith he's talking about. When he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of your own doing, we can't translate that, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that faith is not your own doing. Okay, once again, it's grammatically incompatible. It's the salvation that's not your own doing, but that doesn't mean that faith is meritous. It's not that God has reduced the cost and just said, look, I know there's nothing you can do, so I'm going to give you the one thing you can do. Just believe, and I'll take that as balancing the books. No, we're not saved by the power of faith. 
we're saved by Jesus, okay? Faith connects us with that. And there are some who have worried that if we don't, um, if we don't make this a monogenic, okay, I know that's a big word, I'll get to it in a second, versus a synergenic interaction. In other words, if we don't see salvation merely as God reaching down to us and just, that's where life comes from. If we're not extremely Calvinistic, then isn't faith meritorious? Isn't that the decisive act that saves us? Instead, I, I find myself still in a synergistic position where mankind is responsible for their behavior and faith is required for salvation. But, but, that makes sense to me because what is the expression of faith? Faith says, I can't do this. Faith says, I need help. Faith says, the only way to salvation, to life itself, to a restoration in my relationship with God is through the merit and work of another. Of another. And so I don't, I don't know how you can see faith is meritorious. And if you're walking around strutting, thinking, I was smart enough to believe in Jesus, you do not understand the seriousness of what we just read. It's not grace and faith. It's grace through faith. And those are worlds apart. Okay? But let me tell you this morning, especially if you're not a Christian, how is it that you connect with this gracious gift? It's through faith. Just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Receive the gift. God is holding it out to you in Jesus Christ. Take it and pull it into your heart and hold it. That's what faith is. He says here that it's not of works. He says it's the gift of God, not a results of works, so that no one may boast. Okay? Boasting, pride, by definition, involves merit. It says, here's what validates me as a person. Here's what makes me better than other people. Here's why God made a good choice in choosing to save me. And he says there's no room for that if it's grace alone. Listen, if you build the quality of your Christian life on your behavior, you will swing through boasting and pride, which will disconnect you from Jesus, and insecurity and destruction, which will disconnect you from Jesus. Okay. But there's more here. Look at verse 10. It says here for... So it said, not a result of works, but then it says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Okay. One of the things is, if you read rightly what the New Testament is offering in Jesus Christ that we call grace, then you go, well, then my behavior doesn't matter. And there's a sense where that's absolutely true. And we have to understand that's the tremendous reality of grace and salvation, that people could go, well, great, give me the free pass and I'm going to party like hell right? That, that danger is a real danger, one that the New Testament constantly addresses. If you're explaining salvation to people and they don't go, well, you know, isn't this just a get-out-of-jail-free card? Then they're not hearing it right. But Paul in Romans chapter 6, he says, look, the way God has done this, sin abounded and then grace abounded all the more. And he imagines those who say, well, then why not sin even more so that grace may abound all the more? And he says, how can you who are dead to sin live any longer in it? It's not merely forgiveness that's being offered, it's transformation. 
It's not merely no longer a death sentence. It's life. And so he says here that we are his workmanship. God has made us, and in that he's made us for good works. So we're not saved by works, but we are saved unto works. God has a purpose and a plan for your life, and as we already saw, that's a gift. In fact, what does he say? He says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, look at all the things God does there. We are his workmanship. He makes us. He creates us in Christ Jesus. He creates us in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand, and then it adds that we should walk in them. Okay, here's what it's saying. Simply put, when God saves us, we don't have to figure out how to pay him back. Okay, it's not, okay, this is an incredible thing that you've done, God. Now, what am I going to do to repay you? You can't. There's nothing. And God is not taking a risk on this investment going, I hope this is worth it. Let's see if I save this person, if it will be of great benefit to me. That's not at all. That, the work doesn't end with the free offer of salvation. Salvation transforms you. It changes you. You are his workmanship. You are something that he's made. And then on top of that, he has prepared good works for you. He's laid them out before you sovereignly placed them in your way and said, here are the things that I'm giving you to do. And it says that we should walk in them. Now, I want you to notice how that sentence finishes where we begin. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once, what? Walked. And how does it end? Created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. Okay? There's a behavioral difference between and you were and the after but God, definitely different. Two different walks, two different lifestyles, but they're lifestyles because they're rooted in life. So there's a walk of death because you are dead, and there's a walk of life because you are alive, okay? And so even those things are not things that we can take credit for. They're not things that we can boast in. They're things that God has given us to do, enabled us to do, called us to do by the grace of God. That's what we mean when we say grace alone. But let's get practical before we close things out. What does this mean? It means that when you're going through rough things in your life and you know that you should be praying, how do you enter your prayer? You either enter it by grace or by merit. You either come in and you say, look, God, I know that, and you lay all the things you've been doing wrong on the table, but I've been trying really hard and, or you do it making promises like you would with a debt uh, um, collector. Look, I know I haven't been able to pay my bills, but just give me one more month. And so we come to God and we go, look, I just need this right now. If you do this for me, I promise to whatever. That's merit. You say, what, what gives me the right to ask God is something that I am doing, something I have done, something I will do. If you can't pray, because you know that you've screwed up, if you find yourself in the depths of sin, and you just go, there's no point in going to God. Look at the mess that I am. And you think, i got to clean this up first. Then you don't understand grace. This is what the author of Hebrews says. He says, seeing as we have such a great high priest existing for us in heaven, who can sympathize with our sins because he was tempted in all ways, yet without sin, let us boldly enter into the throne room of grace. When we enter into God's throne room with our requests and prayer, we do it because of who he is 
and because of what he has done. And so we do it confidently. If God is so sovereign and he's so gracious, then why do anything? Why pray? Why tell other people about Jesus? If God is the active ingredient, then why participate in these things? Why go on mission trips? Why read the word if it's all predetermined? It's a backwards way to think about it. If God has elected to use his word to powerfully change lives, then why wouldn't you read it? You can read it with confidence. If you know that God has elected to use prayer as a means to change the world, why not prayer? Because you know it's not just bouncing off the bronze ceiling, but it's actually reaching the throne room, and there's a sense where prayer is more about God changing us than it is about changing him. If God has called us and said, you're no longer dead and trespasses sins, you're now alive, why get up and try and fight that temptation again? Because you are alive, because Christ is in you, and that's the hope of glory, because you can trust these things. Why come to church when you don't feel like it? Because God, by his sovereign grace, uses the church as his body to build up the body of Christ. It's all of grace, and only grace. And if you're not a Christian this morning, there's nothing you need to do to pre-qualify for salvation. If you came here looking for answers on how you could set your life right, I'm sorry, I've probably made your day worse. But hopefully I've done so to make your day better and just say freely receive what God has freely given. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Trust no longer in the works you haven't done, as disqualifying you in the works you have done as qualifying you in the works that you promise to do as qualifying you and trust in what God has done in Jesus Christ. Because there is no other name under heaven, and that includes yours, by which we could be saved. It's by grace alone, and that is the best of news. Let's pray. Father, we are so determined to make it about us. Even some of us, we think, yeah, for most people and their problems, grace is enough, but not me. I pray that you'd help us to recognize the pride that underlays that insecurity that actually says, if I can't earn salvation, I don't want it. But God, you've so written history that you are the hero of the story. And that's tremendously good news, not only because we cannot save ourselves, but because there is no more glorious, wonderful, loving, and kind hero. We don't have to cower and settle for your salvation and stoop under your awful rule because it's our only hope. We rejoice in the fact that Jesus is Lord and Savior because you're this type of God, a God of grace and kindness and mercy and love, and that you bridge the gap between us that we were unable to bridge. I pray, Lord, that grace would just flow through the veins of our very life, that it would change the way that we see one another as trophies of grace, evidences of God's goodness, 
that it changes the way we see those who are not part of the church as being eligible for what God has done in their ineligibility. I pray as well, Lord, that it would change the way that we relate to you, that it would draw us deeper into relationship with you, closer to your heart, uh, that we would seek to avail ourselves to all of the things that you've offered in Jesus Christ. What Paul says in chapters Ephesians, uh, chapter 1 of Ephesians, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places of Christ. What he calls in the passage we just read, the riches of his kindness. I pray, Lord, that we would dig deep into those realities, confident that your grace makes a difference in our lives. We ask this in your name.